2 Chronicles 5. This message is a full circle back to Solomon. We kind of talked about him in that message, House uh, to Home. And then we moved to his father, David, then to David's predecessor and King Saul. And now we come back to the dedication of the temple, uh, full circle back to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 5. I'll read the entire chapter. And thus... All the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and all the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast, that is, in the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark in the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, the Levitical priests, brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen, that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the Holy of Holies, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles of the Ark could be seen in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Verse 11. And when the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical priests, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then, then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Amen. I wrote in your little note inside your bulletin that you are a masterpiece. And I outlined a few of the things, all of the neurons that that are firing in your brain, the vessels of blood, the amounts of sense and colors that you can smell and see, that we are, man, we are a work of art. We are an immaculate piece of machinery, if you want to call it that. That what our bodies are capable of doing 
of seeing, of remembering, it is phenomenal. In all of the world, there is nothing in comparison. You can have the most sophisticated computer and it cannot function to the level of our brains. You can build the greatest AI or robotics and it cannot rival the human body. There is nothing in the, in the, in the world that we have that can compare to what we call this body of ours. Unparalleled. Unparalleled. Right? But the last part of my letter to you to this, this week was this. That no matter how immaculate the body of ours is, if you lack one thing, it's absolutely worthless. It's literally a corpse lying in a graveyard somewhere. It's, 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 a, it's a line of chalk on a street. That it fills a wooden box. That's all it does, this immaculate work of ours. That without the breath of God within our being, causing the soul to live, giving a backbone and substance to the physical nature that we have, unless you have that, the body is nothing. Nothing. Worthless. It is literally on an anatomy table somewhere being dissected by some medical student. It's a cadaver. It's a corpse. It's decaying under the earth somewhere. That's all a body is. But when you have the breath of God in it, it is not on a table, not in a box, and not in the ground. It is alive and well, moving, operating, working, loving, orchestrating, envisioning, painting, building. It is doing so much, capable of immeasurable things, all because within it there's a breath. There's life. You see, that's what gives substance to this body of ours. That's this message, breath and bones. You can have great bones, but if you don't have breath, there's not much there. That's this message. This is King Solomon finishing an immaculate temple. I mean, it was expensive. <laughs> I mean, you can look at the greatest architecture of the world, right? Solomon's temple would rival that. You could go to Greece, you can go to any ancient place and find places that are still standing today because of the greatness of its architecture. Solomon's temple would have rivaled that. The amount of detail, the amount of metals and gems and artisanry that, that, that went into this, this structure was immense. And as this was completed, this chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, is about the completion of the temple, and then from there, its dedication and what happened. We're going to parallel that with the body. We're going to see how in the temple there was something more significant that gave it substance in life that was beyond the gold and the wood. Let me give you another analogy. This past week, you know, we've been, you know, I've been in like renovation, like decoration mode for the last month. That's like my, like, uh, that's all like my mind is thinking. I want to hurry up and, and like be like Solomon and finish the building of the temple so that we can, so that my mind can move on, right? Because like, I'm just still thinking like, what else needs to get done? What can we do right now, right? 
And so I was kind of furnishing my office and just finished figuring that out for this past week because it finally opened up and I'm able to do that. So I went to, one of the places that I went to this past week was Ikea. Anyone ever been? You've all been there, right? For home furnishings, right? You know, Ikea is one of those things that looks great, but you move it once. Uh. <laughs> it kind of survives the first move, but as soon as you move it twice, it's like, oh, I don't know about this anymore. They're improving because they're kind of moving away from particle boards and they're going into more solid stuff. And so it's a, it's a lot better than it was 10 years ago. Okay, But I, I went to Ikea to pick up some frames and, and some other stuff, right? And as soon as you go there, they automatically take you up to the top level because they want you to walk through the showrooms first before you go down into the marketplace and ultimately check out. And if you've been there, like this past week, I, this was just one of the rooms that I saw that was right at the entrance, right? This was Ikea here in Costa Mesa, right? And as I saw this, the first thing you'll notice about an Ikea showroom is that everything has a price tag, right? That's the first thing you'll notice. Like there's a tag hanging on everything. You see the bin and, uh, you know, the slot that it's in or if it's in the marketplace. And the second thing you'll notice about any showroom is that there seems to be something missing. Like, there might be some color coordination and you can kind of see it and you're trying to picture this, can I see my room or my house or my kitchen? Can I see some space in the place that I live looking like this? And that's what you're trying to envision, right? But from that vision of what you see in this showroom, there is something lacking. It's called warmth. There's, a, there's something beyond furnishings that gives meaning to my home. Like when you walk through the door of your house and you find a piece of furniture, you see something there, there's color coordination and it's all present. Ikea does it better. But no one lives in one of these showrooms. It lacks life. It lacks family. It lacks history. It lacks a story. That's what Ikea showrooms lack, no matter how well put together they are, right? Another example is a picture frame, right? <laughs> you think about it, like I, I took a, you know, just a, a screenshot of, of a couple of picture frames. And how strange would it be to buy a picture frame and leave that little insert in, <laughs> you know? And just put this on the mantle, you know? It's like, that's not my wife and son, right? I'm not graduating. That's not even a real like moment in history, right? It's just a fake picture. Who buys a frame and leaves the insert in and puts it on the mantle? Like, that's a nice frame. Like, like who shows people frames when they walk into their house? Like when you go to a new home, a friend's house or a colleague or wherever, and you walk into a place and you're looking at picture frames, you're not looking at the frame. You're looking at the picture that it contains, the memory that's encapsulated in that moment that's hanging on a wall for a second, right? And so whether it's a body that's well put together, whether it's, it's a house well furnished, whether it's a frame that is expensive or good looking, there is something inside of it that gives it meaning. It's a breath of God. It's a, a family, a story, a history. It's a captured moment, that experience. This is what gives substance to all of the things on the surface. 
And for Solomon, it was exactly the same thing. He finished an immaculate temple. They bought, brought cedars and gems and metals from all the corners of the world. Every great artisan they brought in and they finished it. And Solomon is saying, this is wonderful. My father wanted to do it. He passed the legacy down to me and now it's done. But something's missing. And this is how we started this progression, right? From house to home. How do you make a house a home? And for Solomon, this temple was all about a dwelling of God. It was about God being there. And so he says, you know what? It's done. All of you leaders of the land, please, let's assemble. And he calls this huddle. And the entire point of it was, let's bring the ark here. See, this is what he learned from his dad, David. He learned something tremendously important from him. And it was about understanding that fundamental centerpiece of the temple. God's presence. If he is not in this temple, there is no reason why we should have built it. If he is not here, it is for naught. It does not matter how expensive. It does not matter how well built, how articulate and detailed it is. If God's presence through that ark is not in that holy of holies, we are worshiping for nothing. We are singing songs and babbling in the wind and it means nothing because God needs to meet us here. This was the heart of Solomon. That's why he gathered all of the leaders and he says, let's bring the ark now. Let's bring it in here. Because, like our bodies, this temple, it means nothing without that breath of God. All our bodies is, it's going to decompose to dirt. This structure will eventually fade. But what happens in this moment, in this place, from this outer court to that holy place, to the holy of holies, what happens in worship here matters. This is the reason. It's the same with the church, isn't it? I mean, like you used steel and drywall, you cover it up with some paint, and you got blueprints that you're following. But in the end, like what separates a church from a, a hobby club? Like people gather at the YMCA. Lives are changing at the YMCA, right? And so what's the point of gathering in a church? It's not just life change. Because like I mentioned, you can go to so many other places in the, in, in the community where lives are changing. That's not the point of gathering in a church. The point of gathering in a church is to change lives through meeting with God. That's the point. That's what separates the blueprint of a church from a community center, from a youth center. It's about God's presence being in the midst of it so that when people come here, sins fall off. The past is gone. There is grace. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is a path to heaven found and declared in a church. That's what separates a structure like this from others. And so the first main thing that you can read in your sermon outlines is that the temple is and has always been about the presence of God, not its physical structure. 
That's this thing. In Old Testament terms, right? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of God. Be- between the wings of these angels, this, these cherubim, that seed of mercy, where it says in Scripture, from here I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to meet with you. This is what it says in Scripture. I have a few of those verses down for you in your outlines, right? But this has always been the centerpiece in Old Testament worship, that Ark of God, the covenant, where God says, I'm going to see you, hear you, speak with you. And this is what Solomon brings in. You know, in the chapter that we read, what are... An amazing scenario. Like the treasuries were full. So to speak, the bank accounts were full, right? Like they had everything. Like everything that was dedicated was brought in and put into the treasuries of God. And if you want to put it in contemporary terms, the facility was great and they had lots of money. Right? And Saul's saying, let's finish this task. And he learns this from his dad, right? The Levites, they brought up the Ark of God from the city of David, and they're bringing it into that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies of this temple that was just built. And just like his dad, they're sacrificing animals as they're bringing it, right? This is a story that you can imagine he heard from father, like David is talking to his young son. You know, son, one of the most important things that ever happened in my life was a day that I witnessed a man die by the hand of God. I feared God that day. And I realized that something was wrong and he's pouring this knowledge and experience into the life of this next generation, his son Solomon. And Solomon's drinking it all in. You're right, Dad. The center of your people, of this nation, is about the worship of God. You wanted to build a house for God because you dwelt in palaces and you believed that God should dwell in such a place? He receives that call. And all of the stories that he heard from his father, now he's living it out as king, as they're bringing the ark into the temple. It says they're sacrificing so many sheep and oxen, they can't even count how many. Like, I can count pretty high. (laughs) Right? I can count, Just it'll take me some time to get there, but I can count pretty high. And what they're saying is, Man, like every animal of the nation was pretty much brought out. They brought the entire farm and then some. And they were just sacrificing so many in reverent worship to God as they were bringing this ark. And it's the same picture. Every six paces David did it. Of oxen, of fatling, sacrifice to the Lord. David dancing in abandonment before God, derobing himself of any kingly nature and saying, I am a worshiper of God. It is before the Lord that I've done this. This is what he said. This is what he believed. This is what he knew. And Solomon does this. He brings this ark through worship, through costly sacrifice that took effort and time. And this must translate into how we see the church operating here. Like our facility, I I understand, you know, it's comparatively, it's not the best facility when you look at campuses uh, across this county, across this nation. But it's a space for us that fits us in this moment. And it's been such a privilege over this last month 
to really be a part of, of a group of people that want to make this sanctuary beautiful, that want to make this space beautiful. And I have little chat rooms, right, that uh, design teams and different people. We've got a praise chat room and a little de- like a design team, that uh, a group of ladies that are doing. And like we're, we're constantly, we're, we're, we're talking about different things and putting our church together and getting services and, and doing all that. And it's been such a privilege to work to be able to bring us to at least where we are here and now with what's been given to us. And as I mentioned, like, my mind, I I, want to turn it. I want to turn it from this, like, renovating, decorating mindset and bring it to what Solomon is doing here in this temple. Like, the temple is done. Let's make sure what we do here is have people meet with God, hear from God. And in our moments of corporate worship, that something transcends in this, in this space. That when, when people are worshiping, we're finding that people are being freed, healed, saved. Like those things happen in the midst of our gatherings. Because that's the second thing, right? The second thing that, I'm, that, I, that I'd like to just really point out from our passage is that congregational worship is and has always been about a declaration of God's worth, not the quality of music. It has always been that. You look at this completion of this temple. There are 120 trumpeters and musicians. They got priests everywhere. They got cymbals and lyres. And all of these things are happening. And they're declaring something. And this is what it says in our passage, right? It says, In unison when the people made themselves heard with one voice to the praise and glory, to, to praise and to glory, glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voices to bless the Lord and say, He indeed is good for His loving kindness is everlasting. And when these things happened in unison to glorify God, that they're declaring something about the nature of God and who He is in their lives. When that happened, it says then the temple was filled with the cloud of His glory. Right? And that, that Shekinah glory of God, that cloud that descended and filled that temple that day was God saying, I validate this moment. That I am here, thick in the midst, in your presence, and I am speaking and listening to you. This is that cloud of glory, something visible and tangible that was before the people of God. And that happened when they were united in worship, declaring God's worth. God, you are good. Your kindness, your love is everlasting. You know, they were united in worship, that, that, that joint worship. And I, I think there needs to be a delineation here, that it's not joint in terms of meeting under the same roof, right? Because people can meet in the same room and not be unified. I mean, we've experienced that before, right? Like, if you, you go to many different spaces, right? You're like 
in the same space, but there's no sense of unity here. There's a verse in the New Testament where there's an emphasis on that when Jesus was talking about the gathering of his people. And he says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. You you, you see the specification there. It doesn't say where two or three are gathered, I'm there. Because two or three people can gather anywhere, right? That there's three people standing in that same vicinity over there. There are a couple of dozen people in this sanctuary right now. It is not about gathering. It is about the togetherness in the gathering where Jesus is saying, there I am in their midst. And so it's the, it's the unity of spirit that goes beyond location and facility and goes into something that is deeper. When in unison the people made themselves heard with one voice to the praise and, glo- and, and to glorify God, when they lifted up their voice to bless His name, then, then, that cloud of glory, then, Jesus says, I'll, I'll be in their midst. The last verse of chapter 6, or 5 of our text, this to me, I love what happens here. When it says, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Like, I imagine myself in that moment, and Solomon the king, literally just a worshiper in that moment, through celebration and effort and time, sacrifice, they bring this ark, and they set it in its place in the Holy of Holies. All of the leaders are there. They got trumpets and they're just blowing. Clang. Clang. (coughs) And then in one resounding voice, Lord, you're good. Your love is forever. And then suddenly, this response comes. The cloud filled, and everybody understood this moment. And every priest was knocked to the ground. Like in this moment, it just literally blew them away. This is something special. And I ask myself, like, can we have church like this? <laughs> like, I ask myself that. Like, when I'm as a pastor and getting ready on a weekly basis for our Sunday gatherings, like, I ask myself, Could our gathering look like this? 
Like, could we be so like disengaged from the fanciness and facilities? Just in a spirit of oneness, with a declaration led by praise members and all of the instrument people and singers and all of that stuff going on. And in one accord, as people are just declaring a worth to God, God says, yes, I want to be there. Like, I dwell in a throne in heaven and I feel comfortable on this chair and I'm looking down at all of my people on the earth. I want to be there. I want to tell them something. I want them to know that I am close to them. And he comes and he rushes that place and he fills it with the glory that is tangible and people are hearing him. They're feeling him. Lives are changing. Salvation is happening. Healing is occurring. And in this moment, there is a glory. Everybody knows it and everybody's just like, man, I can't bear it. I, I can't bear it. This is an experience that I believe can happen and should happen at church. Not just a comfortable stroll in and say, you know what, that was a, that was a, that was a nice message. <laughs> that was a nice time, right? Like beyond that, like it looked good. I was so happy to be there. Like I was blessed, right? No, like the experience as a pastor that I yearn for as a congregational experience is this, verse 14, where people are dropped and unbearable in the presence of God like I am broken before the Lord. Like my sin has no place here. My doubt has no place here. My frailty has no place here. All I can see is glory. Like, that's all I can see right now. Like, my mind, my vision, that all oh, this is it. I see glory. I see glory. I, I see glory. Now, I, I don't want to go overboard and say, like, every Sunday experience needs to be people, like, falling on the ground and just uh, enraptured by the glory of God. We'll have, like, smoke machines and just, like, you know, and we'll do all of, like, I don't want to go overboard with that. But what I want to say is this. When you come to church on Sunday and when we worship in one voice, this can happen. This right here, right? Right here. We have it, people blowing trumpets, so to speak. We're going to be singing in unison. Unless you're not looking at reading the screen during worship. Like all of the parts of this can be present. But that inner spirit of unified worship really mean and we're declaring it to, to God and you feel that if the praise ministry and us all together our spirits have interlocked in unison we know God is good and we're singing songs that we mean so will I <laughs> As oceans, as stars, as angels, as all of this is crying, so will I. Like, we mean it. Like, it, it, it has substance. And then you feel people being freed. Like, freedom is actually taking place.
You sense God is moving in hearts and lives. People walked in not believing in Jesus and they suddenly have a revelation of the Son of God that, that He is who He said He was. People walked in with brokenness. God was there. And there's wholeness. Like they, they walked in frail and sick. They walk out strong and straight. Like that can happen when God's presence touches a life. Like that, 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 that's real. God just didn't move in certain ways back then. Like He's the same today. <laughs> Yesterday, today, and forever. Like, let's yearn for this. Praise team, as you guys come back, I'm going to end with two things. First is this, that when we are united in corporate worship, that is important. Like, your presence, your faith, your voice, that your log in this fire of corporate worship means something. That unity in our singing and praise to God is powerful. That's what I want to say first. That it means something that you showed up today. That when you showed up and you sang songs together, that that had substance. Right? That God sees that. God saw and heard that. And that's important. So I, I, I want to validate that. That your presence in worship helps strengthen and unify this body every week. Every week it does. The second thing that I want to say as I exit this message is that we need to establish an altar. There are many things that churches are known for. You can just think of any church in our community and there's probably an adjective that comes to mind or a description. My sincere hope is that when somebody thinks about City Chapel, that out of the first one, two, three descriptions that come out, I want them to say, that's a praying church. That's a praying church. And for me, that seems like it's a generation removed. My mom was a praying person. My dad's generation was a praying generation. They knew how to pray as immigrants. I mean, that's all they knew. They prayed in the morning. They came at dawn and they did all that stuff. I mean, like those immigrants, that's a praying generation. This generation, not so much. Like, no, it's different. We're, we're more worship and praise, you know. It's different. But no, I, like, I want to claim that. I'm not saying we need to come at dawn, but I want to be a church that prays and that moves mountains when we pray, that lame are just made well and salvation, like all of the, like, because we pray and we're moving the heavens. We're filling these bowls of incense in, in heaven and God is saying, ah, I love that smell. They're praying before me. It's when Jesus drove out everybody and says, hey, this is not that type of house. My dad's house is a house for prayer 
Like that's the, the, the description. That's the first thing that I want to come out when somebody says, what's City Chapel about? And so in order for that to happen, there needs to be an altar of prayer at our church. Right? Can I read verse 12 through 21 in chapter 6? This is Solomon's prayer. All of the leaders and all the nation gathered for the dedication of the temple. And in this moment, the king, the worshiper of God, the son of David, this is what he says. Then he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. And he set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on that. That's being bold. He stood on that. He knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And there kneeling, he spread out his hands toward the heavens. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that which you had promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you had promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard for the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you that your eyes may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place of which you have said that you would put your name there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray towards this place, and listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place, from heaven. Hear and forgive. That's my prayer, man. God, like day and night, whether we're here or we're not, would you look upon this place, 3111 West Orange Avenue, Anaheim, California and would you look favorably upon this place that I'm gonna pray here 
And there's going to be other people that gather at different times and we're going to pray here. And God, I just want you to, to be mindful. I want you to hear what your people are praying. And would you answer and listen to them? That's what I'm praying. Like when you come here and you pray for your family or your work or your business or whatever concern you have, when you pray, my prayer is God listen to those prayers. I'm never going to know what probably 90% of those prayers are ever going to be. But Lord, when people come here to pray, listen to them. Turn your eyes here. Like, like have favor. Like look here particularly. And that's, that's what I'm praying. I turned an important corner this past week, I think, at least in my own mindset, because I established a prayer altar for me. Like, this is my prayer altar in this facility. And it's in my office. There's a large storage room in the office. And I got some bookshelves in there. But this last week, I made it my prayer altar. And it's an inner room because you come in the building, you have to go in an office, and then you find an inner room in that office. And for me, it became like a holy of holies. The entrance to the lobby to my office to the inner room. I set in there a small lamp and a small table. The table's only this big. Literally, it's big enough only for my Bible. This is exactly how I want it. Like when I sit there, that's what I want. I don't want enough room for my computer. I don't... God, speak to me in this moment. Like, may this be my mercy seat before you. And may you promise to speak to me here on this tiny table. Because I realize that prayer, it needs to start with me at City Chapel. But this is what I also know. Prayer cannot end with me. It might have to start with me, but if we want to do anything significant in our church, it cannot end with me. That it needs to happen amongst our leaders and members on a Sunday, midweek. And we've got a lot of rooms on the other side of this space. We're going to make prayer rooms over there. If you want to come midweek to pray for stuff, I invite you to, to go and pray there. If you want to come and pray here in the sanctuary, pray here. Great. But let's build a spirit and a culture of prayer, a faith-filled prayer at our church. Let's establish that altar. Amen.